Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I am joined by Eliza Orland, Manhattan Public Defender and candidate for Manhattan District Attorney. Welcome in, Eliza. I'm so happy to be here with you tonight. I'm so glad to have you because right now you're a public defender, meaning that you represent people who are accused of crimes in New York City, Manhattan in particular. But you want to become the district attorney, meaning that you'd be the person who accuses people of committing crimes and prosecutes them. Why do you want to make this change? I know I ask myself that every day, but really it's how we're going to make the changes that we so desperately need to see. I have spent my entire career as a public defender here in Manhattan. I've represented over 3000 people charged with crimes and really seen the cruel unjust way our criminal legal system operates. That's not keeping us safe, that's wasting taxpayer money, that's over prosecuting people for low level offenses. And meanwhile, not holding people accountable who commit serious crimes and I know we can do better. And we're seeing these national conversations about criminal justice reform happen across the country. And I'm so excited that people have really rallied behind my candidacy to elect a public defender as the next Manhattan DA. All right, and I understand you have a video that we can watch? Yeah. Excellent, let's check it out. For the last 10 years, I've been a public defender here in Manhattan. I've represented over 3,000 New Yorkers, people who didn't have the money to pay for a lawyer. I fight for justice for them. My name's Eliza Orleans and I'm running for Manhattan District Attorney. Every day in court, I fight against a criminal legal system that's cruel and unjust. One that's rigged for the rich and powerful and against everyone else. A system that fails us that devastates black, brown, and low-income communities, that tears families apart, that hurts innocent victims, and it does not keep us safe. We can do better, we must. I know the system from the inside, so I know we can't change the system unless we change the DA. That's why I'm running to be your next Manhattan District Attorney. Join me in the fight. Eliza, that was quite the compelling statements you made there. And also you can see your passion in there. And I know that you make the case that voters need to elect someone who's never been part of the prosecutorial industrial complex. What do you mean by that? Well, for far too long, prosecutors have really perpetuated this system that is not broken as some people would have you believe, but that's rigged and it's rigged against the people that I've spent my career representing as a public defender, lower income folks, people of color, you know, our black and brown communities, our LGBTQIA communities, people with disabilities. And it's rigged in favor of those who are wealthy, well-connected and powerful. And that's not how we're gonna keep our city safe or effectuate justice. You know, we really need a DA who wants to think through what it would really mean 
to not just default to incarceration for every societal problem. You know, as a public defender, I've represented people who were dealing with mental health issues, dealing with substance use disorder, experiencing homelessness or poverty. And putting those people in jail is not addressing the root causes of any of the things that they're dealing with. We need to be investing in communities, declining to prosecute low level offenses, providing treatment and help for people who need it. And that's how we will keep our communities safe. You also want to significantly downsize the scope of prosecution. So does that mean you're simply not going to prosecute people for crimes? It does. And in fact, thankfully, there are prosecutors now getting elected who have been in office for long enough that these longitudinal studies exist, like Rachel Rollins in Suffolk County, Massachusetts in Boston, who has declined to prosecute about 15 crimes. And these are low level offenses, you know, things like drug possession. And it turns out that when you decline to prosecute these these offenses, it makes it less likely that a person will end up having future contact with the criminal legal system. And this is all borne out by these studies by by what's actually been happening for the last couple of years. And so when I decline to prosecute these low level misdemeanor cases, in fact, it's going to reduce crime instead of what the media would sometimes have you believe or prosecutors or police officers would have you believe, which is if we don't lock people up, we're not going to be able to keep our community safe. Well, it's actually quite the opposite. Yeah, I think there was something similar done in Baltimore last year that had some very strong results. And so I would love to see what you could do in terms of New York City. And recently, the current Manhattan DA, that's Cy Vance, he said he would seek to vacate 100 convictions that were obtained through the work of NYPD officer James Franco who happened to be indicted for perjury and falsifying testimony. I know the Brooklyn DA did something similar, kind of in that move just the week before. Now, these are unprecedented moves, but I get a sense that we shouldn't necessarily be impressed. Well, what I can tell you is as a public defender, I have seen far too many times a police officer or a detective like Detective Franco walk into court, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, say I do, and then lie under oath, whether it be to a judge, to a jury, to a grand jury. and not be held accountable for this. So Detective Franco being finally held accountable, you know, these convictions being vacated, him being prosecuted is a step in the right direction, but it's certainly not something to be heralded as the cure all. He is emblematic of the problem that is so pervasive and exists across and throughout the system, and he's not a one-off or an anomaly. Yeah, it seems like this is something that may be breeding within the system and it definitely has to be weeded out. It also makes me wonder the lives that were ruined as a result of that kind of behavior and not addressing it or policing it. And so in terms of moving forward, when it comes to possibly having to prosecute people, are there any steps that you would take that would be different than kind of the current steps taken now? Definitely, and you know, prosecutors for so long have been complicit in the continuing misconduct of the police. You know, whether it be the brutality and harassment and assault that we've seen in the streets, or this this falsifying of documents and false arrests and perjury. You know, we need a district attorney who's going to stand up to the police, who's going to hold them accountable. You know, I've laid out very detailed plans for a police accountability unit that actually holds the police accountable. But also, there are so many other serious crimes being perpetrated in our city. 
community that the DA's office has really turned a blind eye to. You know, those who are those that are committed by those who are wealthy and powerful. You know, corporations who are committing wage theft to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, people committing the slow violence of environmental crimes. You know, that that also disproportionately impact our low income and black and brown communities, whether it be toxic mold or you know air quality or other offenses that are, are not being really prosecuted by the Manhattan DA's office or investigated because so much of that office's resources are going towards prosecuting low level offenses. Yeah, it sounds like you would shift the resources and make the change that really can have an impact on individuals lives in a positive way. So I am definitely here for that. And so when it comes to kind of that competition out there that you're going up against as you run for the Manhattan DA spot, uh, what separates you? So I'm the only public defender running for Manhattan DA and that makes me uniquely qualified in that I have more litigation and courtroom experience than anyone else in the race. I really have understood and seen the systematic ways that this criminal legal system has destroyed lives, has torn apart families, has not taken into account the human beings whose lives are at stake with every single prosecution, has just dehumanized people, has has just thrown their lives away, has really perpetuated mass incarceration. And I understand what it would take to fix it. So not only do I have this authentic commitment because these are the issues that I've been fighting for my entire career, but I really have the know-how and understanding of of all of the ways in which we really need to focus on reallocating resources, thinking about changing the system and the ways in which we address prosecution um, that uniquely qualifies me out of this entire field of candidates to um, to be the next Manhattan District Attorney. Now, some of our viewers may not necessarily know this, but you hit the national stage back in 2004 on a TV show. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Eliza? Yep. So I have listen. I've spent far more of my life in the courtroom, in the trenches, fighting on behalf of of people. But I did appear on Survivor back when I was in college, and really was a huge fan of the show and loved how it tested your limits, you know, physically and emotionally and psychologically, and really decided to apply as soon as I saw the first season. And my mom, of course, was like, "Of course, sweetheart, you can do anything." Now she tells people, "Be careful what you tell your kids because they believe you." And got on the show when I was 21 years old, and um, you know, really did quite well, and really have uh, have enjoyed getting people involved in, you know, these these issues that are so important because of the reach that I have, thanks to um, you know, thanks to being on Survivor. So it's exciting to really get people engaged in local politics who maybe would not have thought about a DA race in Manhattan, but for the fact that you know, someone who appeared on Survivor was running. Wow, that is quite the experience. And I'm sure that a lot of the skills that you learned being on Survivor have been extremely helpful in your journey, especially in this race for the Manhattan prosecutor's position. So can you tell everyone where they can learn more about your work and your campaign for Manhattan DA? Absolutely, we are running the only grassroots campaign for Manhattan DA, so we rely on small dollar contributions. And so, if you are, if people are able to donate, go to elizaorleans.com and chip in a dollar, two dollars, five dollars. We really, really would appreciate the support. And you know, I'm Eliza Orleans on Twitter, E Orleans on Instagram, Eliza Orleans for NY on Facebook, and would love to connect with everyone. 
Thank you so much, Eliza. And to our viewers out there, Eliza Orleans is running in the June 22nd primary in New York City. Thanks so much for joining us, Eliza. Thank you, thanks for having me, great to be here. Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. I am your host, Adrian Lawrence, and this time I am joined by former Brooklyn public defender, social justice activist, and founder of Zealous, a nonprofit that launches coordinated public defender campaigns and uplifts new media. Thanks so much for joining us, Scott. Thanks for having me on, great to see you. Yes, so Scott, can you tell us more about Zealous? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I was a public defender. I was a public defender for close to 10 years. We're at this really unique time right now where racial injustice and state violence is more visible, transparent, and widely acknowledged than ever before. But at the same time, the violence, waste, and cruelty inside of courts, jails, and prisons remains largely invisible. So as a public defender in Brooklyn, I saw every day how much state violence occurs every day inside jails and empty courtrooms, separated by jail bars and courtroom legalese. And I saw how all the things we allow our leaders to spend billions of dollars on every year, police, prosecutors, cages, they don't make us safer or healthier. But in fact, they do the opposite. And every day, you know, public defenders and other frontline social justice workers witness the churning of thousands of irrational laws and practices. Yet this critical perspective and expertise, as well as the relationships we have and forge with the people we represent, um, have largely been overlooked in policy, media, and advocacy spaces. So I got to thinking alongside folks in my office, how could we as public defenders speak out more, uh, share our perspective and expertise about issues that no one was talking about ethically and effectively. How could we partner, and I mean like truly partner with the people we represented in communities and local organizations to start pushing back against the narrative police and prosecutors enabled by an all too willing media uh, we're, we're, we're putting out and why weren't we yet? Um, so after close to a decade of work kind of on the, on the, at the intersection of policy and practice, we decided to take these lessons learned national. So Zealous is this national initiative now, I'm doing it full time that supports, activates and trains public defenders in partnership with community organizations, artists and the communities and people that we all represent to harness media and technology, develop communication strategies, build true capacity and coalition and leverage the expertise and perspective of frontline practitioners to transform legal systems. That's the goal at least, that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> Well, it definitely sounds like a hell of an initiative. And also, it sounds like you're making some real change. And I understand that Zealous coordinates public defender policy campaigns, strategic projects and partnerships and cutting edge new media advocacy. But can you tell us in concrete terms, what is Zealous, Zealous really proud to have accomplished so far? Yeah, so we haven't, we haven't been around for long. I mean, we've only been around for a little bit over a year. Um, when COVID struck, um, I decided to take this on full time and grow it into a you know, full team. Uh, but so far, in just a little bit over a year, we've trained hundreds of public defenders and up and coming social justice champions in a variety of offices and law schools all over the country and a range of skills they definitely don't ordinarily teach you in law school. We're using curriculum that we co-developed with leaders in a wide variety of disciplines, including predominantly organizers and people with direct experience. And we teach things like working effectively with community organizations, campaign development, using intentional humanizing language. So even though we're well-meaning, we're not going out there and further entrenching the status quo. Advocacy storytelling, engaging people as partners, the people that we represent, working with press, etc. And through this work, we support the development of story and narrative driven campaigns. So our, our 
trainings are not based in hypotheticals. We actually are invited in to do trainings that center on issues that folks are working on and that are priority issues in those local jurisdictions. So from non-police response to mental health issues in Harris County or ending fines and fees in Louisiana, decarceration in Chicago, in accountability in Prince George's County, Maryland, we're working with a range of in a range of jurisdictions with a range of partners and kind of following their lead. I guess the best the best you know way to explain is just through a quick example of maybe I think our work in Prince George's County, Maryland. So it's really close to DC. And one of our primary efforts really has been trying to think outside the constraints of the typical legal boxes about how to amplify the voices of those with direct experience. So within months of the pandemic, when it was at its worst in Prince George's County, they were still sending hundreds of people to COVID infested jail, unable to social distance, no PPE, outbreaks all over the place. You had to pay $4 to get medical treatment during COVID. Judges were issuing boilerplate denials, public defenders were banging their heads against the wall. Civil Rights Corps, this extraordinary organization filed a powerful motion with 60 sworn declarations from people inside brave enough to describe what they were going through. And the federal judge cast them aside as as unhelpful, marginally relevant. And she complained that she couldn't call the chaff from the wheat. Um, traditional legal avenues were not working. There was a court watch program of one, there's one volunteer. So they called us in and um, we worked with public defenders alongside a, an amazing local organization run by two formerly incarcerated women, Kiana Johnson and Carmen Johnson um, and Civil Rights Corps and brought in a range of uh, actors, actresses, Broadway stars, uh, civil rights champions, activists, black law school deans to read the words from these sworn declarations. We didn't have cell phone footage, but we had their words. And we launched this campaign called Gasping for Justice and went from one person, an audience of one, judges to, to millions. 20,000 petition signatures calling on the state's attorney to take action. The county came to the negotiation table with uh, for the civil rights lawsuit. And that one volunteer in court watch, went to hundreds. And most importantly, though, we helped strengthen that coalition between defenders and people with direct experience. And now they're fighting on all cylinders. We're there, kind of let go a little bit. And we're seeing them now fight together to keep virtual court access open. So we're in a range of jurisdictions working on a range of issues using a range of different interventions. Yeah, for real. That sounds so incredibly impactful and game changing. That is, uh, that's pretty remarkable, Scott. Uh, also, you know, there's been a lot of conversation and talk about having these nonprofit organizations that are looking to make change in spaces that impact primarily people of color. And I know it sounds like you are 100% in and invested in making this change. But as a white man, I'm sure you've heard the whole white savior narrative. What would you say to those people? Well, I mean, I only can speak for myself. Um, you know, fortunately, those who know me and work with me know why I do this work, and it's definitely not for me. You know, I, I can't change the fact that I'm a white man in the same way that I can't change the extent of my daily outrage over how cruel, irrational, racist, unhealthy, brutal, and, and costly the system is, and how much it needs change wholesale, full transformation. Um, so I've used my privilege of voice, of, of freedom, um, of access to call out the injustice I know and that I saw firsthand on repeat um, every day as a public defender. But I'm also working each and every day, and I think we all have to, to better understand my privilege, um, to better understand whiteness, 
and how even the most well-intended things we say, I say, and do can inadvertently harm others. And it's something we talk about a lot actually during our trainings with defenders, knowing when and it's more often than not to sit down. You know, know when you're not the messenger. We don't want to replicate the same kind of power dynamics that we see in court where we're the ones always doing the talking. Um, and more than ever, actually, through our work at Zealous, we're far more behind the scenes, um, thinking constantly about how to uplift others as an ally, accomplice, and co-conspirator. And so it's a it's a real, it's um, you know, it's a challenging it's a challenging uh, space, but it's really it's an honor to have the opportunity to grow and contribute that, to the movement at at the same time. Yeah, that makes me really happy to hear because it is a powerful position and the access and the privilege that you have and to see you invest it and to give back in it the way that you do, that is so cool. And I wish more people were invested like that. And so I know you've already talked about the incredible things that Zealous has done, which again, sounds incredibly remarkable. I wanna know, are there any things that are kind of on the docket that people can look out for? Yes. Yeah, so so more trainings and additional jurisdictions. We're building out our law school curriculum. We're authoring a toolkit for jailhouse lawyers, so public defenders on the inside, to add new tools to their arsenal. And we're doing that in partnership with the Jailhouse Lawyers Initiative and at NYU Law School. It's actually run by formerly incarcerated people. Campaigns, we're soon to launch two new campaigns built on firsthand accounts in partnership with local activists and advocates and defenders who are in direct communication with folks who are incarcerated. One project in Michigan built on over 100 letters from people in solitary confinement as part of the effort to abolish the torture in Michigan. The other campaign is built off about the same number of of audio recordings from phone calls from people on the inside who wanted their voices to be heard. That's in Texas and that's gonna be on pretrial incarceration. And we're working in Chicago as well. They just passed the Pretrial Fairness Act. There's really remarkable legislation that really overhauls the pretrial justice practice in all of Illinois, but also ends cash bail. And unfortunately, when we make these strides forward, so when we pass cash bail or when a more forward thinking prosecutor comes into power and when the pro-carceral forces feel threatened, they use the same tactics that got us into this mess of mass incarceration, fear, you know, taking on salacious and sensationalist cases to try to take back what they lost. And so we're seeing that already in Chicago. So we're trying to work with local advocates, defenders, and people with direct experience to try to not just defend and be reactive, but be proactive about you know how to respond to violence and what our responses to it should be. And that's not, it turns out, locking more people up. That only makes the situation worse. Yes, it does make it worse. And I'm glad that Zealous is around and that you are around to make it better. So can you please tell our viewers where they can find and learn more about Zealous and yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so our website is, is Zealous and there's a period between the US. So it's Z-E-A-L-O.us. Um, but I think more interesting actually is to look at some of the work that we've done. So, uh, you know, so stillinprison.org is a current campaign that we're uh, that we launched in support of a, a movement in uh, Oregon to call on this, uh, this, the Attorney General of Oregon to um, make a, an important constant, uh, rule from the Supreme Court retroactive. Stillinprison.org. We're working with local activists, including a former former jailhouse lawyer, and GaspingForJustice.org to look at the work that I talked about in Prince George's County. And uh, there's a lot of information there on how you can get involved and help.
Awesome. Thank you so much. Scott Hatchinger, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me.